I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Peter Cohen, a primary care physician at Cambridge Health Alliance in Somerville, Massachusetts, and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Cohen has written a perspective article on the FDA's proposed new guidance on assessing the safety of dietary supplements. Dr. Cohen, just to get a sense of the magnitude of the issue, how many Americans take dietary supplements and what are they taking? Dietary supplements are taken by a wide cross-section of Americans. Over 50% take uh, a supplement of one kind or another, usually vitamins or minerals. But the non-vitamin supplements are also extremely common, fish oil, echinacea, ginseng, glucosamine. And up to 15 to 19% of adults have taken a non-vitamin supplement in the past year. Also, supplements to achieve particular goals, such as weight loss, are also very common. In one survey, 8% of Americans had taken a weight loss supplement last year, and 15% had taken it over their lifetime. In 1994, Congress passed the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, which changed the regulatory framework for supplements. What was the impetus for that change? Well, interestingly, the long history of regulation of dietary supplements in the United States has been that since the 1930s, really, whenever the FDA has tried to uh, regulate a little more, have a little more control over dietary supplements, for example, in the early 1970s, it suggested that higher doses of vitamins be regulated like drugs. This led to a backlash in which the industry and other advocates uh, created or pushed for legislation, which eventually was instituted, which led to more lax regulation. This happened in the 1960s, 1970s, and again in 1990s. The impetus in the 1990s was that David Kessler, then the commissioner of the FDA, was attempting to regulate the claims that would be made about dietary supplements. And this led to the backlash that would eventually uh, enact the 1994 legislation, Deshay. So what did the law, or, or Deshay, accomplish? Deshay accomplished several things. One is making wide access, creating wide access to many dietary supplements, including minerals, vitamins, botanical products, amino acids. It also created, by law, um, a the understanding that all supplement, dietary supplement ingredients that were sold in the, in the United States prior to 1994 were safe, assumed to be safe, until the FDA identified harms of them. And uh, it also established that no supplement could be promoted to prevent or treat disease. But at the same time, it permitted structure function claims and these two principles, that all supplement ingredients prior to Duchet are safe, as well as the fact that structure function claims are permitted, has created an environment in which we assume everything on the market is safe and can be used despite the law to prevent and treat illness. What are the limitations of the FDA's current powers under Duchet? regarding uh, the regulation of dietary supplements? The FDA really has its hands tied 
behind its back when it comes to regulating dietary supplements. Anything can be introduced in the market without any uh, pre-assessment, except for an exception we'll talk about shortly. And the FDA is in the position of playing catch-up in that they need to identify significant unreasonable risk of a product before it can be removed. Now, even when they do identify risk, it's a Herculean task for them to remove it from the market. A good example of this is ephedra, ephedra alkaloids, which were identified as early as 1994 as being harmful, potentially harmful, and the data uh, continued to accrue for the next decade. But it took the FDA an uh, entire decade and an extensive court fight when that led to the Supreme Court until they were able to remove that one ingredient from the um, from the markets. You note in your perspective article that the FDA has received notification for only a small fraction of the new ingredients that have been introduced into dietary supplements since the passage of Deshaies in 1994, which would mean that many ingredients have been introduced without any safety assessment. What has that meant for uh, the health of the public, and um, how risky are the ingredients that we're seeing on the market? As you mentioned, despite the tens of thousands of new dietary supplements that's been, that have been introduced, there's only been 170 ingredients that have been acknowledged by the FDA to have had sufficient information to be introduced. Now, we don't know how many of the tens of thousands include new, new ingredients, but we know that the number is great. So the question comes about, without anyone checking the safety of new ingredients, what could get into the, into the, uh, onto the markets in the United States? And we have seen time and again that ingredients that might appear safe, for example, in traditional Chinese medicine, turn out to be dangerous when meticular, uh, meticulously studied. The classic example of this, and one that's particularly difficult to detect because of its chronic toxicity, is aristologic acid. This was used in traditional Chinese medicine for a long, long period of time, until the 1990s, when because of a, uh, a series of patients who had received it in Belgium, developed renal failure. And several of them, years later, developed urethral and bladder cancers. That the dangers of that acid were recognized. So, without meticulous study, we know that some of these natural substances, even some that have been used for years, might be hazardous. Your current article addresses the FDA's proposed new guidance. Uh, what would change? What would the FDA uh, be able to do in terms of assessing safety of supplements under these proposed guidance? In the new guidance, in the draft guidance, the FDA has, has for the first time, explicitly explained what would qualify as a new ingredient and also has created a framework by which depending on three main factors, how much documented use there is, how the documented use compares to 
the suggested use of the new supplement and how long the duration that the supplement is suggested to be used for. Depending on those three factors, the FDA has established its criteria for what testing would be required prior to introducing a new ingredient. This is not new in the sense that the since Deshay was passed, all new ingredients needed to have a reasonable expectation of safety. But it was never clear what, how to define a reasonable expectation of safety. And the FDA to date has just been doing that on a case-by-case uh, basis. This allows the FDA to clearly proactively say, these are the requirements to submit a new ingredient. And if you meet these, you will likely be able to introduce your new, new ingredient. As a procedural matter, uh, how does this uh, go forward? How, how does the FDA move from a proposed guidance to something which is actually enforceable? So the FDA has uh, proposed their draft guidance back in July of last year. And until December, they were eliciting feedback. And they received over 146,000 pages of commentary, much of it negative. Most industry groups, if not all, have come out strongly against the guidance and have requested it be entirely withdrawn and suggest even that it, is, it violates the Shea. Industry advocates believe that the FDA has overstepped their the law with this new draft guidance because the FDA is treating these new ingredients as if they were food additives, requesting the kind of rigorous science to introduce them as you would a food additive. For one, that's not the case. These requirements are less so than food additives. But the more important point is that the advocates are correct that ingredients that were available in the United States prior to Deshay can be introduced without any testing. However, when it comes to new ingredients, as is the case for most things with the FDA, new products are often held to higher scrutiny than older products. And new ingredients need to meet a reasonable expectation of safety. And of course, there's no way to scientifically do that unless uh, you have science to support your, your conclusions. What are the limitations of the new guidance and what more potentially should be done? I think there's several things that should be done to strengthen the, the draft guidance. In line with the Institute of Medicine and National Research Council's 2004 report on the evaluation of safety of dietary supplements, I believe that documented historical use is insufficient by itself evidence of safety. What we've seen is that sometimes when an uh, ingredient is used in food, for example, uh, kava is a good example in the South Pacific Islands, it was entirely safe. Its hepatotoxicity only occurred when it was used as a uh, supplement ingredient. Therefore, I would be concerned about only using documented historical use, for example, in a foreign country, 
uh, in lieu of data. But the draft guidance allows that if the dose of the new ingredient and the duration of use is the same as it was used historically, that would be sufficient to introduce the ingredient. In addition, in line with the IOM's recommendations, I believe that all data should be made available to the FDA. As it is now, a company could run 10 experiments and submit only the two favorable ones for the FDA. There's no law requiring that all 10 uh, data sets be submitted. Uh, that makes no sense to me. You wrote an earlier perspective article about contaminated supplements. How common is contamination? Contamination, or for the most part, adulteration, where people are purposely placing pharmaceutical products into dietary supplements is alarmingly common. The FDA has identified over hundreds of products that are pharmaceutically adulterated. And unfortunately, this is probably just the tip of the iceberg because they seem to be arriving in ever-increasing numbers. What are the most hazardous contaminants or adulterants? We're seeing an incredible variety of pharmaceutical products and dietary supplements. For example, banned medications formerly used to, for an indication, for example, for weight loss are appearing in increasing numbers. Subutramine is the most commonly found. And we know that even in carefully controlled settings where physicians were giving it in, in, uh, in research trials, randomized controlled trials, that subutramine led to more heart attacks and strokes than placebo. So just imagine using subutramine that's been made in an illegal factory without any quality controls whatsoever, and at dosages that range from a fraction of to up to six times the prescription dose in individual pills. So we're talking about a situation where you take something that's already been shown to be harmful in randomized control trials, you can just imagine uh, the risk you're taking with these substances made in this setting. Unfortunately, that is only the start of the problem. I'm particularly concerned about analogs. This is where unscrupulous manufacturers are taking the uh, pharmaceutical parent compound, for example, sildenafil, and modifying its chemical structure. Here, in the case of sulfo-L-denafil, which I described in the article, they've added two methyl groups, they have substituted a sulfur for an oxygen, and other changes to the molecule. The hope is that it will fly under the regulatory radar screen, and these substances are extremely difficult for the FDA to detect, while having the same effect of the parent compound. Of course, as we know, creating an entirely new pharmaceutical, even if it's in the same class, is tremendously hazardous when there's been absolutely no research in animals, much less humans, and it's turning us into the consumer, into human guinea pigs. And, and what are the obstacles to detecting these substances and then removing products from the market as a result? Since Deshay has greatly limited the FDA's enforcement ability and the FDA has to play catch up, the FDA is in the business of needing to wait till harm is reported to them 
from these substances, or, and they're doing this as much as possible, going out and proactively testing substances. But what we've recently found is that even when they have identified a pharmaceutically adulterated supplement, it often remains on store shelves. So a year after a weight loss supplement adulterated with subutramine and phenolphthalein was identified by the FDA, a distributor recalled it, and there was an import alert, it remained readily available to our patients on store shelves here in Massachusetts. Given these dangers, or at least these uncertainties, what do you say to your own patients about dietary supplements? I have four tips for my patients. One is avoid supplements you don't need. And that will eliminate a lot of unnecessary use. The next is if you're going to use a supplement, choose one with a single ingredient with the exception of uh, vitamins and minerals. Every other supplement should be single ingredient and not a combination of herbal ingredients. And finally, avoid anything claiming to have a health effect. So if a supplement suggests that you'll lose weight or be stronger in the gym or improve your sexual performance, certainly avoid it. Even worse is a supplement that actually does any of those things. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. My pleasure.